Welcome to the Jeff Knows Inc. Entrepreneurial Podcast with your host, Jeff Lopes. Jeff has over two decades' experience as a serial entrepreneur, building brands like KimuraWare from his home basement to a multi-million dollar global brand that has sold over a quarter million pairs of boxing gloves. Jeff's here to educate, guide, and drive you on the process of bringing your ideas and dreams to reality with the inspiring stories from some of the top business minds. Welcome to episode 166 of the Jeff Nosing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lope. Super excited to have on today the one and only Detroit Dust, Dale Brown. Great conversation, tons of fun, tons of value. Sit back, everyone, and enjoy. We are live. We are okay, ready to go. Video. We're live. We're live on the Jeff Nosing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lope. Super excited to have on today, Dale Brown, Detroit Dust. What is up, brother? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. This is going to be a fun conversation. Absolutely. You have ex- it's blown up all over social media. You're you're getting quite a following. Uh, your videos are just getting tons of hits. And this this persona, this personality is coming out. I, I love everything you're doing. I saw the video. I'm assuming that was your daughter with your outfit yeah. the other day. I, I, I absolutely I got two kids. I absolutely love that. Uh, let's just go quickly into you growing up. Um, we had talked a little bit prior. Your mom had a military background, shooting, all that stuff. Let's just talk about you as a kid, as a kid a bit, and then just kind of bring you into how you got into the military or into the the policing, law enforcement background. Okay, great. Um, first of all, never got into policing or law enforcement background. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> all, and, self def- uh, all self defense. Uh, uh, all survival. Survival. Private private sector outside of the, when I was in the military. Okay. So, very cool. All private sector. Very and, cool. Uh, all centered on protection of people and keeping people alive and safe. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So let, let's talk about daily growing up. Yes. So when I, when, uh, as a kid, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, University of Michigan um, is where the Ann Arbor, or is in Ann, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah. So it's a college town, big college town. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> where my, as a kid, we were actually at Eastern Michigan University, where my mother was doing her undergrad before she went to medical school. And while she was there, she was in the National Guard, and uh, we went shooting all the time on the weekends. And when we weren't there uh, shooting in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is right next to Ann Arbor, um, as kids, we then went to our cottage in Wheatley, Canada, uh, right on the beach. Where my grandmother had a great beachfront property. I grew up on the Canadian coast. Love uh, it. On the weekends, uh, I didn't know it was for babysitting. Uh, we just thought it was <laughs> for my grandmother. So my mom could have some adult time, I'm sure, go do adult things on the weekend. Uh, so we, um, yeah, we had a great childhood growing up. My little sister's a doctor now, um, and my mother is a retired physician. And uh, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather were the first African-American owners of a private hospital here in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, my grandfather was a doctor as well. And uh, we come from a military family. So my grandfather was in the military. My mother was in the military. My sister, my little sister was stationed in Iraq for a period of time as a physician. And I was also in the military. So we come from a long standing military family. And most importantly, uh, we're a family that focuses on helping people. I love that. I love it. So it's just you and the only siblings are you and your sister. Yes. Was there any pressure for you to get into the medical field? Um, 
maybe early on and when they thought I might get good grades in, in school, but since I did not get good grades, <laughs> no. <laughs> so what age did you uh, join the military? Um, I was um, 20. So I was a little older. And how long, how long were you um, active? Three years. And I was an airborne paratrooper. So I jumped up airplanes and helicopters. So I got a chance to push myself to a higher level personally, because I'm not a daredevil and I'm scared of heights. So for me to jump out of anything or do anything that's um, height related uh, is, it was a challenge. So it was a great experience in that I had to believe in myself and overcome the fear of death in order to do this. And it was a great experience. So that's what changed me personally uh, to a person who can face fear and face extreme violence and extreme conditions because I grew up in a very comfortable, a very um, relaxed and collegiate environment. My father was a history teacher, uh, taught government and history. And um, he went, he got his master's from Eastern Michigan, became a high school teacher. So I grew up in a, an environment where education was vital yeah, and it, yeah. something I was completely not interested in. So you had, did you, did you, did you ever like, obviously you have entrepreneurial juices in you. Did you, when did you kind of realize you had that entrepreneurial juices kind of the pursuing your own? Um, you know, I think initially it, it actually happened when I was in the army. Yeah. I was selling ramen noodles. For <laughs> Love a it. How many, and how much were you buying them for? A dollar for four, I think. <laughs> and I, I was paying, I, I would sell the sauce separately from the actual ramen noodles for an additional dollar. I, I cut out the sauce uh, from there and I would sell it separately for another dollar. That's that's you call hustling to the max. I love it. I love it. I love it. So as somebody that's myself, that is absolutely hates heights. How did that, how did you get that breakthrough? Like w- when you're signing up when they said, okay, this is the opportunity paratroop. What decided you? I'm sure there's other routes you could have went. What pushed yeah. you towards that? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's it's just crazy that if you obviously yeah. like myself, I wouldn't even question even trying that, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, I, I, it's so funny because I was in JRLTC. I went to high school in West Germany, where my mother was stationed in a, a military base in Ansbach, West Germany. And that's where I graduated from high school, barely. And as I barely graduated. Um, in my family, you don't get money unless you go to college. So as my opportunities became less and less, um, I, the military became more and more, uh, an option. Yeah. I was able to, uh, find the military as a last option before poverty. (laughs) And, uh, what's funny is what made me choose. It was really interesting. I never thought I would do it. First of all, I used to make fun of the whole concept. Yeah, I was in West Germany, and this Lieutenant Colonel um, Potit, which was uh, in charge of General, was he was in charge of Junior ROTC, and he hated me. This guy hated me. He just was livid, and I, one of the reasons was because my mother was a captain in the army; she was an officer, and I had officer privileges, and he was yeah. an NCO military. And he didn't think that I deserved to live this kind of uh, life as an officer's child in high school with a, with a car. I was the only kid in my school with a car. So imagine 
being yeah. the only kid in your school that has a car. Yeah. So yeah, he hated that. The concept that I was a president of the senior class. Um, he just really did not like me. And he said, he showed me a picture one day and it was him. He looked like uh, a skinhead, uh, very big skinhead. Yeah. As a, I guess he, was, he showed me his picture. He was in his twenties. And I looked at him now. He's an old man. And I saw him in Germany <laughs> and he just showed his picture. He goes, what's this? You know what this is Brown? I looked at it. I said, ah, uh, a skinhead. With no <laughs> neck. That the skinhead with no neck. He was like, no Brown. That's me. An airborne paratrooper. Something you will never be. <laughs> I was like, so let me get this straight. You think I'm going to jump out of a perfectly good working aircraft? Why, why would anyone do that? It's the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> That's why I'll never be that because I'm not that stupid. He was like, Brown, get out right now. <laughs> so that was the end of my JRLTC career immediately. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking, That's stupid. I'm not joining the military anyway. So as my opportunities were reduced uh, at age 20, <laughs> I found that, you know what? Let me show that jackass that I can do this. And uh, it's weird because I didn't respect the guy, but it's funny how someone could say something to you in high school. It's those, trigger, it's those, it's those trigger points, right? Those trigger points trigger in life that just that alter the course, which is crazy because everybody goes through them. Some people never realize they even had them, right? Yes. I was like, I'm not even, that's not even a thought process for me. And also, I get in there and um, <clears throat> opportunities have been reduced by my lack of educational interest. Uh, I'm what's called educationally abortive. <laughs> I started going to junior college, but. You know, I wasn't there for um, studying. I was there because it was something to do. Yeah. So apparently that doesn't last forever. You can't just hang out at junior college. So, <laughs> and uh, well, the military is a, an option. So when I got there and I, I, I had options, I could be a, a mechanic. You know, you're talking about the, the, the options you yeah. can choose. <laughs> it said light wheel mechanic, or you can be um, um, some kind of communication specialist. You know, it, so me being a prudent, a non-prudent thinker that I am, yeah, I was like, why would someone want to know how to fix cars? Why would someone want to know how to set up electric, uh, uh, communication lines, like power line, like actual, you know, like working for the phone company? Yeah, who would want to do that, right? All vi- and, all uh, viable right? careers, right? <laughs> uh, airborne is not, you know, and, and and I chose uh, airborne rigor, which is a unit where you pack shoots you um you actually pack parachutes for all kinds of equipment so uh and, and personnel so one of the things you do is it's called lapes um low altitude parachute extraction systems so that's um <clears throat> the aircraft comes down uh drogue shoot comes out pulls the tank out pulls the cannons out of the aircraft and that's what we do as a part of our mos part of our job and um of course, you got packed parachutes for, for the uh, actual paratroopers as well. And so that's what I did in the military was uh, I was an airborne rigger. So I chose a job you could not actually use in the civilian world whatsoever. <laughs> so when I got out, there was absolutely nothing. I learned in the military. They could help me in the civilian world have a job. After, and, three, after three years, did you ever think of staying? No, no, I, no, I didn't like it. I, you have to be a certain <laughs> personality type. Yeah. Be, the military is not for being creative. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a place for creativity. <laughs> Less creative. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. So, so, so got, go, go. When you got out, where, where was your next adventure? Yeah, I was, I was a private investigator. And okay, um, PI. So, yep. And so the whole time, 
what I did was I was training in martial arts no matter where I went. So constantly training, constantly training in martial arts. Um, you know, I've been training. I started training in martial arts when I was about 10 years old. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. What, 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 what form of martial arts did you start training at? Taekwondo was yeah. my first. Yeah. And it was uh, Chung Du Kwan they taught there and Mu Du Kwan. Okay. And uh, that was in Ann Arbor. And how long did you, how long, what, what was your next uh, venture into martial arts? Uh, you know what? I just started studying different ones. I started yeah. going to judo class or wherever I could go. And what I found is that I wasn't interested in the esoterics of yeah. the martial art. You know, I really just was not interested. Um, I wasn't interested in the uh, background of those martial arts. I wasn't interested in the origins. I was interested in safety and being able to protect myself if need be. So that's what I cared about only. <laughs> and, which, is, uh, which is fine which is totally fine right i mean i mean well, you get now, a lot of people that are very into the traditional aspect of it i mean you talk about like brazilian jiu-jitsu or something they're very into the traditional aspect of it but i mean now obviously in the last 15 20 years with mixed martial arts and everything it's just a combination of learning as many skills as you possibly can right yeah i mean i probably would have joined mma if it existed back then when i was a kid I'd yeah. i would have been way more interested in that yeah. um but I, I mean i liked i liked you know for one aspect i liked the esoterics socially right but not yeah. actually so the real reason i went to school was not to learn more about korean culture or japanese culture or chinese culture um it was about learning things that i could actually practically use in real life yeah. that was the reason i came there and not that i didn't like to learn also about separately japanese culture korean culture and chinese culture i did i, I just didn't that's not why i went to the school though yeah and if you go to the school you have to, you're going to learn how to count in their language. You're going to learn to use their words. You're going to learn about their culture, uh, mannerisms. Yeah. And uh, with that, uh, that is what separated me psychologically from those types of training. I didn't want to learn those things, not in that format. I wanted, yeah. to, if I wanted to do that research that's separate, right, from the actual yeah. physical training. And what I wanted to know is what I teach now, what I created. What I wanted to learn and what I needed to know then, which is what everyone needs to know, whether you live in Canada or yeah. the United States or Mexico, wherever you are in the world, you need to know psychology, how human behavior affects your life, you personally and those you come, you come in contact with. And then you're, you also need to understand. You're, you're, you're visually gone, Dale. There, you're back. Oh, sorry. Continue. Continue. We'll edit this up. So, uh, so the, um, this part out. No, 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 you're good. You're good. What you're was that? No. Was so that? as you were saying about, um, about visually, like you said, when, when it comes to the separating the, the cultural aspect from the yeah. actual martial art. Yeah. So for me, I wanted to learn martial arts for safety, not for, you know, the enjoyment of other cultures and not that I disrespect those other cultures or anything or did not respect them. I do respect them, but not in that way. Yeah. Uh, when I went to wrestling, I started wrestling at like age eight. So I was wrestling um, in a American style wrestling, freestyle yeah. wrestling. Yeah. And I got put out of the class at eight years old. I was put out of the, off, off the team. It was a city team. Why, 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 why did that happen? Because I was choking the other kids without putting an arm inside the choke. And I refused to put an arm inside the choke. And so no matter what, I just, my brain, I could not make my brain, uh, get away from the other kid's throat and go to the arm and put it in there. And they, they you have to do that, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. The naked choke. Right. Yeah. And for me, uh, as an adult, mm -hmm. I've 
probably choked over 100 people in, into submission, only in streets. I've never actually choked someone in a competition a day in my life. So uh, while protecting people and protecting myself, in Detroit, I've had to choke over 100 adults for sure. And uh, no, no youth. We don't choke adult youths ever. So that's transition. So what age did you get into, like I said, the, the, the private security firm? Like when you're from the PI, how did that transition into what you're doing now? Because that's a big difference from PI sitting in a car with a camera. And I, I'm assuming you probably had spousal cheating like you had a, a, a the pi I, I understand the pi yeah. world because i had quite a few friends in that world for a while yeah. my background is i actually took law enforcement at humber college here i'm missing three credits to graduate my dad always wanted me to be, be a, a police officer and my two closest friends uh julian elliott is a, a sergeant up in york region here and my other close friend is a is a sergeant up in peel region so i i grew up with a lot of officers around me right so even though i'm i've been an entrepreneur for 26 years so i understand the field quite a bit so what got you from pi and i actually did lawn um um loss prevention while i was in high school at a place mm-hmm. called zellers i did loss prevention which is so man for, for the minimum wage we're getting packed then the things we did oh god stories but what got you that transition from the pi to what you're doing now Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. So I uh, didn't like being a, a private investigator. Uh, I was a bounty hunter as well, and I didn't like it. I was doing security, so yeah, security yeah. bounty hunters. So, you know, so I, yeah, well, yeah. I didn't like it because what I was hunting was not El Chapo. There was no, <laughs> there was no terrorist. There was no. <laughs> they were literally people living in trailer parks with drug problems. Yeah, and I said I don't want to be a part of anyone's negative existence. You know, yeah. they're already having a bad life. They're poor people. They're, they need help. They're, you know, they're using drugs because they usually have psychological problems or they've had such trauma in their life that <clears throat> they've now got legal problems. And I, I don't want to be a part of their legal problems. I don't want to see them go to jail. I don't want yeah. to capture Cage and ca- possibly kill them just because they're making bad decisions. And they're poor people. Yeah. They're on drugs. They're having problems. I don't want to be the bearer of more bad news for any person. Yeah. And so that's what made me stop doing that, including as a private investigator. What I was doing was bringing people horrible news, you know. So on television, the private investigator brings pictures. And they're like, "Oh, thank you, private investigator, for this great information." I watched Magnum PI when I was growing up. He never had like this experience. I thought I was going to get a Ferrari and I was going to ride around Hawaii, and then I was going to like be, you know, uh, living the life, give out pictures, and this is no, great. No, That's you- not what happened. No, I don't. Well, my my PI buddies were driving a back then an all dark gray or a black topaz undiscreet car. You're seeing the car, eating out of the car for seven to twelve hours, hoping to take a picture. I was once in a car for twenty one hours with no air conditioning. Yeah, that's 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 the reality of it. It that's was one hundred and two degrees, and I had to sit there with my head looking straight ahead. Yeah, 
<laughs> back then we didn't have internet so you have to literally like literally look straight ahead you yeah, can't, yeah. No, like can't look at your phone can't play games no uh, there's nothing you literally look straight ahead for 21 hours yeah it's crazy yeah yeah yes because of, of the assignment right i'm doing surveillance so uh after that i realized i don't like that life for sure yeah. <laughs> not for me and um being quiet for 21 hours not talking is also difficult <laughs> so that was uh for me that would be horrific it was like torture <laughs> A quick, so, a quick question through through this whole process is PI. Were you working independently as an entrepreneur, or were you working for a company? I did both. Security did both. And, okay. Yeah, so I worked for um, uh, attorneys that were looking for information in different you know situations with their with their clients. Yeah, I'm sure. That, I'm sure. Um, insur- insurance companies as well. I'm assuring. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't work for insurance companies. Okay. But, you know, most of you, I worked for actual lawyers, yeah. and I worked for um, uh, bail bondsmen. Yeah. Bounty hunting. And uh, so I never got far enough into the networking to get into insurance companies. Okay. Okay. And I'm glad because yeah. that is the worst for me. It is the worst kind of position because number one, I like to interact with people. Yeah. I like to help people. And I, that not only not, when you're on surveillance, you're not interacting, but you're also about to do something that's not really helpful normally. No, no. So, no. I mean, in some cases you're going to have a bad guy, you're going to put a bad guy in prison. That's great. Um, but quite often it's not that no, no. investigation. It's almost never that it's, you know, some, something where it's a technicality where someone's about to lose their freedom or their, or their lifestyle, uh, getting a divorce or something all because you brought information that is horrible. Yeah, and now they're yeah. crying and they're upset and you just, you, you brought that to them. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a part of that, man. I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't, I can't do this with my life. So I came to Detroit where my family's from. Uh, my family, uh, originally from uh, Detroit, my mother, she grew up um, uh, in Detroit. My grandfather owned a hospital. So my grandma, my mother, um, you know, lived in Detroit and, and lived in uh, really luxurious situations. Uh, so, you know, I have a lot of family in Detroit, a lot of history in Detroit from my family starting the first privately owned African-American hospital. And a lot of the doctors there used to work for my family and a lot of those older doctor families, medical families in Detroit um, are the families we protect now in the upscale communities we work in. So we work in, uh, we protect communities that are extremely wealthy yeah. and, um, and extremely poor, but uh, the majority of them are the, the wealthy clients now, wealthy communities now. So homeowners associations hire my company to protect their uh, communities 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the doctors that we're protecting the same doctors used to work for my grandparents. It's it's amazing. It's crazy, crazy how the world, the real, the world works. So when, when did you start, when did you start that company? Uh, So I started, first of all, in 1994, 95, I started wanting to protect people um, with training. I thought Detroit is such a, is a place where uh, families need help. They need protection. They need self-defense training. And what I learned from being a private investigator was that we don't know the law. So we're going to touch people. We'll put our hands on people. We're going to say things to people, but no one taught us legally the ramifications of action and inaction in any situation. Yeah. We don't know what intent and actions are as it relates to law. We don't know what threats are, what constitutes a threat. We don't know what to do and what not to do legally based on level of threat. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You know, what someone touched me, what should I do? And what should I say? There's no system for that. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could take a class, if you could sign up for a school that teaches you how to legally defend yourself 
by knowing the law before you touch any, anyone, before you do anything to anyone, before you say anything to anyone, what if you knew the law yeah. with your training? And then you could avoid uh, horrible things from happening to people. Yeah, yeah, and, I saw, and I saw people that made mistakes. They said, oh, he did this, or she did that, or he did that. Yeah. And then I did this, and now I got to go to jail. Yeah, they had to go to jail because they didn't know the legal process <clears throat> that they would have to follow for that to be considered self-defense. So what if you knew that already as a regular person, which, of course, we should all know. When yeah, you live of in course. Canada, Mexico, Detroit, I mean, United States, it doesn't matter where you live. You need to know the law. Yeah. And none of us do. Like, go to, I went to all these different schools. So one of my instructors was a SWAT team commander. Of, and uh, his, the instructor was, uh, uh, he taught Kyokushinkai which is my favorite, one of my favorite, one of my, my personal favorites. Um, and that's probably because my, I really like the instructor. Yeah. He was really, he really lived the way. He was a really positive guy, very professional, but he was a SWAT team leader. And we never discussed the law. <laughs> and yeah. in the years I knew him, we never discussed the law. So, you, you know, you're, you're going through strikes, elbows, kicks, and you're sparring and all this, with no law training. Yeah. So I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if there was a school that taught law with, with your tactics so you could legally defend yourself and your family, your business, right? Your community. And then I thought I had to go to different schools. I had to go to your instructor for takedowns for judo. Yeah. Uh, Kyokushin taught some, but you know, uh, and then I'm doing a lot of kicks from Taekwondo and the wrestling. I go to wrestling. I got, I got stick fighting from stick fighting instructors. Uh, I got um, a knife uh, tactics from people who are the knife systems. Uh, and I got guns. I got pistol trainers, shotgun, rifle training, all these different trainings, both, you know, privately and the military. Uh, and what I did was I said, well, why are we, why are we learning all these things in separate places when we have to look, use them ourselves all at the same time? Yeah. Right. So now legally, how do I apply the use of my baton, my knife, my pistol, my shotgun, my rifle? How do I, why, how, what would be the legal circumstances by which I would use these weapons? And, but I have them. So I, should I know how to legally use them? Yeah. And there, there are different ranges of weapons, right? So when would I transition to these different weapons from this other weapon? And why is there no school to teach them? Because every school I went to was like, oh, this is the best. If you have a stick, it's all you need. Oh, yeah. if you have a knife, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, if you have a pistol, it's all you need. Oh, yeah. if you have a shotgun, a rifle. Yeah. Yeah. We're the best. This is the best. Uh, if you don't judo, you know everything you need to know. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like whatever art you're studying, whatever system, whatever weapon system you're studying, it's always the best. Yeah, of it's course. The illusion yeah. for everything. If you do this, I shoot you. If you do this, I stab you. Right? Yeah. Right. Everything is exactly. It's perfect. This this is going to answer all your problems, and that's just not true. So, and I by studying all the different places and, and different trainers, I I can understand the the confusion because it is completely confused since yeah. they don't study each other. So the guy with knives doesn't usually study sticks or or uh, batons or rifles or shotguns and pistols, so they don't know how they fit together in the first place. Yeah. And since they don't use stuff in real life, there was no impetus to make them do this, right? When there's a problem in real life, a martial artist, a sports fighter, um, a, you know, a, a firearms instructor, they call the police. And yeah. then the, you know, normally the police show up and normally it's not a problem. Or what happens with most people in Canada, most people in the United States and Mexico, you never have a problem where you have to call the police in the first place. And if you do, it's extremely rare in your yeah. life. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you don't really know what really happens, right? Yeah. And I, did, I didn't either. I was uh, I, I learned more because now I'm in the circle of different situations as a private investigator. And then I'm helping people. The one thing I do is I always help people. I like I'll be, no matter what. If I saw someone getting attacked, uh, I was in, for example, 
I was in, uh, uh, on the island of um, Majorca on uh, spring break and uh, someone was uh, being bullied. I intervened and then same thing in Barcelona. There was um, uh, an attack of uh, a guy, he's an American being attacked by other Americans. <laughs> and uh, But there was on vacation, we were on spring break. Yeah. And so I go over there with my vice president, we go over there and we save this guy from getting his brain stomped out. Uh, that, so it's my um, helping people and defending people started early on. And yeah. so for me, I just like, I love the feeling of being there to help someone during their time of need. So I, I realized that. So I'm looking for all these different, through these different avenues to see if this matches what, you know, what makes me happy, which is helping people. Yeah. And it turns out none of that stuff was, was um, appropriate. And for me, breaking bricks and getting trophies was not interesting. I just yeah. didn't care. And I, I, I did enjoy hurting mean people. I did, I did enjoy that. I love the look of panic and suffering in their face. Uh, I, <laughs> I really did. I'm, I've, I've learned to not like that now. I've, I've, um, I've given myself therapy, but I did like to see the look of panic and distress um, in the face of violent people. I love to see them get violent and I enjoyed it. So I used to, I used to bait them by acting extra soft. Yeah. And then when they attacked, I would destroy them. And I loved it. I, I did. I, I, that's wrong, though. And I also say this. That's wrong to do. So what, when, when was the initial inception of, of uh, Detroit Dust? Uh, well, Detroit Dust is, uh, is recent. That's my uh, pure school. So I started teaching self-defense and survival tactics in 1994 in Detroit and in parks. So I was just interesting. Park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had no money. I was teaching in parks and I was uh, teaching at the YMCA and I was encountering people that would say, oh, I don't think that works. And then uh, the techniques would be tested right there in the street, right in the park, you know, openly. People would just come up and so it was a great experience that way to see techniques, you know, be defeated and then you win by changing them. Right. Uh, and that's before I started what happened later. And, and what happened was. I transitioned from this would be a great business where you have a school that teaches how to defend yourself and how to use weapons legally to a school that's oriented just for the purpose of training people to protect themselves against violent people. And what I mean by that is I I experienced something. I was uh, in Michigan, in Detroit, when a girl, a woman, sorry, a woman was taken out of her car in front of her daughter. And she was stripped of her clothing in front of a crowd of people on a bridge called the Belle Isle Bridge, which connects the largest U.S. island to a city. And that island's called Belle Isle. And that's between Windsor and Detroit. So this one mile, it's about a half mile bridge. It was more like a quarter mile bridge. Uh, the traffic is stuck because that's what happened every weekend. Yeah. The kids would cluster and play loud music. And then you'd be stuck on the bridge. So these men pulled this mother out of the car, stripped her clothes. Uh, the crowd was cheering. They said that CNN reported said that um, the crowd was cheering, that uh, they were cheering, you know, kill that bitch and something else. And, you know, you know, kill her, kill her, kill her. And I didn't believe that. Uh, and what I did know is that she jumped off the bridge to try to save herself from these men. And when she jumped off that bridge, two other men tried to jump off to save her, but nobody was willing to step forward to these men who had crowbars. These are big men. And 
Nobody stepped forward to rescue these, this, this, this woman in front of her daughter. So her daughter watched her die on this bridge. And for me, that changed me from that day forward. I believe that if I had been on that bridge or if I had trained people that could have been on that bridge, they could have protected this girl, this woman, and her daughter would not have seen that her mother chased off a bridge and die in front of her. So that's that event made me want to just teach people how to survive and not worry about money, not even think about money. For me, that became my new mission. So on the east side of Detroit, I started a school by talking to a building owner. The building I lived in was owned by a very wealthy man. And I lived in a 17-story building. There were 10 buildings around one square block. This particular community was called Crack Alley. And I lived on the front. I lived on the big street, which is called East Jefferson. Yeah. Six-lane road, six-lane city road, right? And it's usually full of traffic. It's a uh, middle-class building. Uh, but all around the buildings around there are low-class, low, low financially uh, people that are either on welfare or they are financially struggling. Um, 90% of the people there are just families trying to work their way out of a lower income life to a higher level income life. Uh, 10% are violent criminals. So, so, which, is, which is a high percent. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in general. Yeah, that, that number is a high percent in, 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 a, in a small demographic area, right? But Right. It's about 500 dwellings. And so what I did was I talked to the building owner and said, you know what, let me, um, let me uh, get a, a, a deal with you where I get a free school, one free apartment in each building for people that are going to be trained as security for your buildings, and we can stop these home invasions and murders. This one square block had home invasions every day, robberies every day, armed robberies, home invasions, and a murder every month. What year was this in? Was this still 94? 94, 95. Yeah. So I went to the building owner. He said, no, thank you. Not interested because I'm not making any money. Why would I, why would I believe that you can do something the police department can't do for me? I've owned these buildings since the 60s. I'm not making any money. Why would I invest in more lights, better doors, better locks when these people uh, you know, are not worth it to me? I, there's no money. I'm literally you know, rich, but I'm not making any money. Yeah. So I said, well, you know, they're paying you. It's hundreds of families. You're talking about, you know, 500 dwellings. Uh, and these people are suffering. Yeah. And he says he's financially suffering. So I said, you know what, let me, let me find another way. He basically told me, no, it's not going to help the yeah. family that's here because he doesn't believe that, that, that anything I do could help. I said, well, you know what, let me do this. I went to the, to the manager. I said, you know what, you know, I didn't actually ask her. I was just saying, like, what is the problem with this guy? Why would he not want to make the family safer? I don't understand. She goes, well, he's losing money. In fact, last time someone got murdered, $70,000 a month was gone. I was like, wow, $70,000 a month? He's like, yeah. She said, yeah. So I went back to him. I said, listen, I understand you lost $70,000 last month. He said, yeah, they've moved out. People just moved out and took off and that girl got murdered. I said, listen, give me a free school, free apartment for me to live in. Let me um, get a free apartment in each building. There's 10 buildings. Yeah. I will find uh, and recruit and train people from the neighborhood that will protect the buildings so you can have safe buildings and uh, give me $2,000 a month so, so I don't starve to death. And um, he said, well, you know what? I'll give you six months. I'll try it. He said, you know, what is it you can do, though? What do you, what do you think you can do that the Detroit Police Department can't do? And I said, I don't, 
I, you know what? Wait, no, I, I, that's a good point. I, what can I do? I was like, well, you know what I can do? Legally, I can have the right to enforce rules, laws on the people that are in these buildings that are raping, robbing, and killing the families. I can legally control and constrict traffic and I can die trying if need be. So, and for me personally, as a warrior, it's a good death. It's a good death to die giving your life away, knowing that you're stopping violent people from killing others. So for me, I thought this was my, my destiny. I was like, well, I am from a, I'm from college town. Yeah. I'm now on the East side of Detroit. The chance of me surviving this is about negative 100%. I'm literally no, there's no way someone from Ann Arbor, Michigan is going to come to Detroit and not get killed messing with gang members. It's just not going to happen. So let me, let me, let me ask you a question this time. Sorry to interrupt your uh, train of thought there. What does your mom say at this point? Like you came from this doctor hospital yes. medical background and now she's seeing your son in, 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 in essentially in the hood trying to save the world. Like what's her mindset with that? You should go to college and stop this foolishness <laughs> before you get killed. And that, <laughs> that was the theme. Yeah. You're going to get killed. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You got to stop it. What are you doing? This is not going to work. What are you, whatever you're doing, you got to stop it. These, these, these Negroes will kill you. I was like, mom, I'm a warrior. And this is what I was. She's like, shut up. God, go, go to work, go to, go to school, get a, get a job. I was like, mom, this is my job. She's like, bullshit. You're not doing another wasting time. Those are poor people. They're poor people. They're not doing, they're not worth nothing. I was like, mom, that's not true. So, um, yeah. So mom did not believe at all in the mission of keeping people alive on the East side of Detroit. In fact, my great grandfather was murdered. Um, uh, and in the hospital, excuse me, in the building, one of the buildings he owned. So the entrepreneurial spirit was obviously from my great grandfather. Yeah. My great grandfather owned a church, a bank, um, a hotel, a movie theater and a bowling alley. So you came from a lineage of entrepreneurs, huh? Yes. I didn't know that at the time. Uh, yeah. I found out later that my great grandfather was, a uh, Definitely an entrepreneur. And uh, and then the first thing he owned was a hospital. And the reason why they, my family, like all the families of uh, that are African-American, came to places like Michigan from the South, because we are yeah. we're all from the South, every one of us, yeah. 100% from the South. Um, and so uh, down there, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather uh, were told by the KKK that they have to leave Alabama or die tomorrow because they're not going to be able to operate a hospital they're not going to have a, a married couple owning a hospital in Alabama that's African-American, period. So you have till tomorrow. You can either leave or die tomorrow, right here where you are. So they got, the, they got yeah. their stuff and got out of there, came to Michigan, and, and started the first privately owned African-American hospital. My great-grandmother became the first African-American female physician licensed in the state of Michigan. And she looked like a German woman, which is how it happened, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, my grandfather had, was uh, kidnapped and ransomed when he was 12 years old. And when my great grandfather uh, paid the ransom and got him back, not long after that, he had an employee that he had sewn his hand on. Uh, the, the employee was a wounded, injured person, came to the hospital. Back then, you didn't have insurance. You would yeah. pay for things like with chickens or if you had some money or yeah, barter, know, or, barter, barter. Yeah, barter, pay for your medical yeah. bills. Yeah. And so he said, well, I have a building. You can manage the building in exchange for, you know, your hand being sewn back on. So my great grandfather 
sewed his hand back on and it worked. <laughs> and then the guy apparently at some point decided he wasn't going to continue working. He just wants to live in my great grandfather's uh, apartment building. So my great grandfather said, well, now you have to leave. And if you don't, I'm taking your door off the hinges. And so he went to go take the door off the hinges and right in front of my grandfather, who just got ransomed, who just recently, you know, uh, survived being ransomed by some criminals. Um, he watched as the man came down with a knife and stabbed him through his back uh, into his lungs and uh, killed my grandf- great-grandfather right in front of him. So violence uh, is part of uh, American society in general. But mm-hmm. when you're doing well economically, you are targeted by people that want to take from you the things you have and, of course, your life. Yeah. And that's common. And so my grand, my family's, you know, I did, I did live through all those things. Uh, what I thought was interesting is, you know, the one thing that I bring to the table which my with my training and my system is that we can stop these kinds of deaths, you know, not just in my family, but in other families. And that was my idea when I first started, uh, that I could actually stop people from being home invaded and murdered. At least I thought I could, right? Yeah. And then I thought I thought I would probably be dead, though. I mean, because, you know, there's gangs. <laughs> What's one person with a rifle <laughs> and a dog? going to do uh, with a bunch of guys that are killers around here. So I, I thought I was going to die. I was pretty sure there's no way I was not going to die. I just wanted to make sure that before I was killed, that I would have the opportunity to die killing those that are killing the families. So imagine if I, if I believe this, that if I would have killed one person that, that was killing me or killing others, that that person, that, that, that violent criminal would not be able to go kill other families. So I have just removed rape, robbery, murder from a bunch of families from this one perpetrator. So that's what I was really excited about, that opportunity as a warrior that I was going to be able to give my life to stop threats, actual impending threats that are going to be killing families. So I was always eager, like, okay, this is my guy. He's going to try to kill me and I'm going to die probably. But guess what? I'm going to at least take one of these guys out. And what I found out was that I was wrong. Clearly, I'm here talking to you. That was uh, that was a daily conversation in 1995 because I was pretty sure from watching all those movies yeah. that you're going to be killed if you go to Detroit. Also, the news media reporting biasly all these stories from the city made me believe that if you go to the city, you just get killed. I mean, it, you die in the city. You know, yeah. you don't die anywhere else. But if you live in the city, you just get killed. So here I am going into the worst neighborhood. The police call it crack alley. The people call it crack alley, and I'm going to uh, go there and protect people from violent people. And I, I thought that's insane. I mean, I, I thought, you know, it's, it's not very a good, it's not a business. It's not a good business concept. That's for sure. Uh, that's why I get offended when people say, Oh, you started your business on with the East side with poor people. That doesn't even make sense. How are you no. going to make a business in a horrible place where there's no money? <laughs> so it wasn't business. It was making a difference. It was about, Doing for others what you'd want to do for you. What if my mother was? What if my mother wasn't a doctor? What if I was one of these little kids growing up, and my mom was trying to struggle, go to college, go to school, uh, go to work, and have a better life for me? And I'm a little boy, and that's what was happening. They're being terrorized. The families, the kids are being terrorized. Ninety percent of the people are living in terror on a daily basis. Senior citizens, single moms, whole families, all being terrorized by this small group of violent people. How how long were you in those complexes, those 10 buildings? And how and, and what was the five, change? Five, five years. First of all, I got six months. He said, you got six months. Yeah. I was like, six months. Great. I'll probably be dead before that. Not a problem. <laughs> so this is a good deal, but I probably won't see the end of it. 
right? And so uh, what I did was I got, I, I went to volunteers in, the, in literally in, in the area, anywhere I could get yeah. them. And I said, look, I get your free apartment. And these apartments are like 750 bucks a month back then. They're, back they're actually then, not, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, but they're in, they're not being taken care of. The, um, the maintenance is not correct. Uh, they're paying over light switches. I mean, the, 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 the actual building is nice, but they're not being taken care of properly. They're not maintained, yeah. No money, right, to do that yeah. with. And that's also a circle, right? So if you don't take, if you don't get good people in, you don't take care of them, they move out. You know, people yeah, get yeah, murdered, yeah. have a job, they're leaving. They're yeah, not going to yeah, stay yeah. in this building with dead people, right? Yeah. They're getting murdered. So what I did was I um, got the volunteers. I trained them in my school and uh, we were able to back each other up. So I got volunteers to go in each building and then I got my school and you train at my school. I train you to defend yourself and we respond whenever gangs come in the buildings or whenever they try to home invade people. We call police always first, right? Yeah. And when we respond, we don't take an action unless there's exigent circumstances dealing with violence. So we don't, uh, we're not, in, in day one, I was never vigilante. What I believed in was protection for the families. So if the police got there before us, we'd back up the police. The chance of the police getting there before us is almost impossible. Uh, yeah. But, you know, if, if we see police in the neighborhood, we go protect uh, them as they do their job and help them. If they need our help, we help the police. Uh, but most situations we came across were extreme violence back then. We're already there. We're living in the building. The police yeah. are at least 30 to 45 minutes, possibly yeah, an yeah. hour away. OK, yeah, yeah. that means it's you stopping the carjacker. It's you dealing with the um, gang that's trying to abduct the lady or steal the children or or, or domestic violence. You know, going to kill the child, kill the mother. You have to deal with this. And I was very proud to, to see that you can actually stop these horrible events and you can intervene. You can create peace. And you, I also developed an entire psychological understanding of how to ma- how to manage human threat conditions psychologically because now that i'm in them it changed me right so i thought of things very physical but human behaviors uh the performance all human behavior and human performance is based on psychology yeah mental belief systems so if you can understand how people think you can create positive or negative outcomes you can create uh what you're looking for and no matter what you're looking at if you want humans to perform something you have to understand them psychologically so my psychological system uh, which is now the foundation of everything, um, came from actually having to manage human threat conditions in real time. Remember, yeah. I'm responsible and accountable for outcome. Yeah. Your outcome and your income are always related when you're in a performance environment. Yeah, That's what I love about the free market. I don't work for the state, for the government. Uh, I don't work against them, obviously, but they work with us whenever yeah. they can. But I work privately for private people that will only pay me money if they are happy with outcome. Yeah, and that means outcome has to be positive. That means I can't go around violating people's rights. My team members can't do inappropriate things to people. Uh, lawsuits destroy the purpose of a business. Yeah, so you course. can't have lawsuits. You can't do things that create a negative outcome. So yeah. imagine a system that is used, that learned how to do that, and now it's being taught to others. So that's what I've been doing the whole time. But now the whole focus is on how do we take what we learned, stopping the murder, stopping the home invasions, um, and then deliver that as a deliverable in a package where regular people can benefit from this. And that's what dust is about. And so I stopped all home invasion murders. I caught some home invaders the first month. Uh, That stopped the other ones from believing they can home invade. And I stopped uh, the prostitution and other things that were interfering with the quality of life of people. And so prostitution was not the problem. It was the way that that they were doing it in the United States here. What they were doing is they had traffic. 
So imagine you're, you're a family living in a building and outside from one o'clock in the morning till six in the morning, there's a line of taxi cabs sitting in front of your building. Like it's an airport. <laughs> you can't sleep with all these cars, car doors shutting, people screaming and arguing or something and just making quality of life hard for the families. So I didn't care about, you know, the prostitution aspect. That's none of my business. I didn't care about drugs or drug dealing. I never got caught up in any of that. Everything we focused on was quality of life. So if you're a drug dealer, I don't know if you're a drug dealer. We don't know uh, if you're not having traffic that interferes yeah. with the quality of life of the people. Yeah. So you can deal drugs on it. It's your business to you and the police. But what you can't do is have traffic coming out of these doors, arguing and fighting and, and uh, home invasions. None of that's going to happen. And yeah. so uh, as a result, we were able to create a peaceful place where people could live, know that they're not going to get robbed, know they're not going to be home invaded. And as a result, the property value increased. The um, And this is what I learned overall that, that makes this viable for the for everywhere, Canada. Everywhere. Yeah. If we protect the regular people, if we protect them, that means yeah. preventing them from being raped, robbed, and killed. That does yeah. not mean prosecuting those that did. So people are getting mad at police for no reason. Law enforcement is law enforcement. You can't enforce laws that have not been broken. Yeah. At least you're not supposed to be, right? Yeah. Because we're making up stuff. So after rape, robbery, and murder, the police come and enforce laws. Yeah. Well, what you want, if you want property value to ascend, if you want quality of life to ascend, if you want people to be happy, you have to make sure they're not rape, robbed, and killed. <laughs> Sounds simple. Sounds yeah. simple. Right. Think about it. How do you feel if someone caught the people that rape, robbed, and killed your family 100% of the time? I mean, 100%. They caught them every time. Yeah. Well, in the private sector, you're fired after you're a suspect. So yeah. after they find your, after they clear you of being a suspect, you're still getting fired. No yeah. one's going to pay you if the people that you're supposed to be protecting are still getting raped, robbed, and killed. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah, they don't care if you get killed. They say they're not paying you if you're dead, and they're not paying you if, in fact, the families are still suffering. So uh, we got rid of all rescued some people. Uh, we were in a lot of uh, force-on-force conflicts and shootouts. Got shot at quite a bit. My vehicles got shot up. Um, at the end of the day, what we were able to do, though, is make a great place for people to live. So the violent criminals focused on us. Then we focused, we focused on protecting the families. The violent criminals simply moved away from the area. Created a proof, of, a proof of concept, right? Correct. And that, the concept to me was that you could die for a good cause. Yeah. But it changed to... Predators are cowards. They don't have a belief system. All yeah. predators are cowards. Yeah. It doesn't take much to defeat them. All they have to know is you're serious. Your level of commitment is higher than their level of predatory investment. That's interesting. I love the way you said that. So I did not know that though. I thought, you know, criminals like these, like, you know, I don't know. I thought they were hardcore, like these super violent people, like super predators. They, yeah. they go, you know, they, they they find you, they go and attack you. And like, like I watched Charles Bronson. Um, death wish one. Death wish. <laughs> I thought it was real. <laughs> Apparently, I must thought that was real. I grew up so, watching that with my dad. All, yes, no one's gonna paint their face to be in a gang. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. So they were wrong there, and <laughs> um, <laughs> and in real life, they're just cowards. Okay, yeah. they just they don't want pain and suffering. And I was there for pain and suffering and death. Remember, I, I already made my decision. Yeah. So we're talking about two different languages. I'm coming mm. there for one thing. I'm gonna die and kill for these families. And these violent criminals are manipulators. They are not here to die and kill. They're here to, well, they're here to kill uh, if it's an opportunity. 
and they're they're not going to willing to die under any conditions. That's not they're not interested in that at all. <laughs> the purpose of crime uh, and violence is to gain something, to gain a feeling of uh, superiority, to gain a feeling of significance when you felt none before, yeah. to feel power and control, to feel as though the pain that you've had in your life, you now have shared it with others, yeah. uh, to feel significant when other people made you, when society made you in, uh, feel insignificant. This gun to someone's head when they're crying for their life makes them makes the criminal feel very empowered. And so what I did was let them know that when you do that anywhere around here, around these families, the there's going to be a significant response and it's going to be immediate. Uh, and there's someone here that's willing to die for these poor people, these families, the senior citizens. Someone will come. They'll come now and they will die if necessary to stop you. And once they knew that, you would think the violent criminals would be like, all right, like in Charles Bronson movies. Yeah. All right, we're going to get together. We're going to take this guy on. Nope. They're gone. <laughs> they were like, hey, yeah. this guy's crazy. Let's yeah. get out of here. Right. And that's true, man. I was totally dedicated to the families. I didn't care when they shot my vehicle up. I didn't care about any of that. Um, and, and as a result of my lack of self-preservation concern, yeah. the violent criminals realized the best thing to do is to stay away from me. And they did. They just got away from that. So I can say is that I also use a lot of psychology to make that happen. So uh, instead of physicality, I learned to use psychology. And uh, we did uh, one of the things we did that was uh, amazing <laughs> is um, uh, I had uh, I have a video where I have a baton. I have a video camera sticking out of a, uh, like a plane van. And we pull up these uh, guys in the corner. Eight drug dealers, two of them. Uh, uh, step forward to to resist the demand that they get off the block. I basically made a demand they need to leave the area. And yeah. this is very close to where the mayor lives. It's on East Jefferson, across from Jeffersonian, which is a upscale place, upscale area. But um, where they were, they were terrorizing the people going to the the, the uh, laundromat across the street. It's kind of rough from this really upscale area. Yeah. And the families are suffering just because these guys are on this corner. And I guess they've been doing this since the 60s. And now yeah. this is 1995. And I'm telling them they have to leave. <laughs> so two guys come off the corner. One guy looks like The Rock uh, with, with an afro. So imagine <laughs> The Rock with an afro, <laughs> right? And he is, uh, you know, 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. He is 6'6". Six, six. And uh, looks like The Rock. Comes off the, uh, the the sidewalk. After I said on a PA system, uh, like a uh, handheld PA, I said, um, no drug dealing allowed. Get off, you know, leave the area. No trespassing, no, no drug dealing. I'm yelling through PA system. And there's families around, people around. And, and six of the drug dealers, like, backed up. Two of them got off the sidewalk, came towards me and the other guy we had with me. And the other guy had braids, uh, the other uh, uh, African-American guy that was with this big Afro guy. And um, what you see in the videos, I come forward with this stick that's covered in foam. I smash it across his shin. It breaks. Um, and he lifts me up, like, off the ground. It's so big that he lifts me up, my legs fly up. I take the baton across the skull, bring him down, choke him, take him across the street, take him away in the van. And you can hear him screaming and kicking the van, him and the other guy. So both these guys are gone off the block. The other six guys run away. To this very day, if you go back to that corner, there are no thugs on that corner, none. And the next day I had a meeting because the store owner, was surprised that someone was uh, attacking the, the, these these uh, these gang members or these drug dealers, and they were the, the store owner. You know, was um, 
I don't know. I think he was working with those drug dealers. That's what I think was happening. And so he called the owners of the buildings. This is on the, this is on the public street. Yeah. Called the building. He called the um, he called the building owners to tell them what happened. The building owners flew in from one flew in from um, from Florida yeah. and one came in from Troy, Michigan, like a, a wealthy suburb. They came in. I showed them the video. And then they said, my God, you have you can't do that. That's completely illegal. The, 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 the liability is uh, we have to fire you right now. I was like, wait, you think I filmed myself doing something illegal? He said, we saw you. You abducted these guys. You took them away. That's that's not legal. I said, first of all, I wouldn't do anything illegal. That's number one. Number yeah. two, I wouldn't film it. And number three, I wouldn't show it to you. They were like, yeah. I don't understand. I said, those two guys worked for me. The one with the Afro is an employee. The next day he had his hair cut. So he looked like the rock with an Afro. The next day he came in, him and the other guy. Uh, and he's actually this guy that's 6'6", was a lineman for uh, Wayne State University. And the next day he cut his hair off and came in and showed up in uniform. The other guy worked for the U.S. Postal Office. And he had braids. <laughs> he cut his braids off and uh, came in uniform, into my uniform the next day. And back then we were just protecting communities. These guys were both volunteering to be a part just to protect the community. And they'll, when they, they, in exchange for your volunteering, I will train you, right? So you yeah. train gun disarmed, life disarmed. And um, this, again, this is 1995. Yeah. And so these guys came in with the afro and, they, and that long hair. I said, well, you guys have to cut your hair. And they said, okay, well, all right. You know, I, I don't, you know, I've been growing this hair a long time. I said, man, you'll love it. You know, we tactics and we got some jobs coming up too. So it's lots of there's There will be economic opportunities as well. Uh, we don't have any right now, but um, you know, you're more than welcome to join and help protect the community. They said, yeah, you know what? We'll do it. You know, we need to, we need to help the community. Right. So they, I said, what, one thing I want you to do before we do that, could you guys go out today and do the skit with us? They're like, what? I said, all right, just, just, you know, just go out there and pull up, you know, give us, we're going to give you some money and you just count the money. Like, you know, you put our hand in the car and act like you're selling drugs. They, it was a good show. It was, it was convincing because we would pull up in cars different cars all day, like like four hours of the day. And um, they'd reach inside and pull out money, like, yeah, getting paid. And those guys are so big, the other drug dealers wouldn't step to them. The other guy was so big. Yeah. That they were scared, right? So the other drug dealers like, normally we would uh, fight over our territory, but that dude's a monster. <laughs> and it looks like the rock. So I'm just trying to stay away from that guy. And uh, uh, so it just shows that uh, you didn't have to be violent. <laughs> uh, the stick I hit him with was a foam stick. I, I said yeah. that. Yeah. It's, the foam stick was like a really light piece of wood. And this guy was, he didn't feel anything. I yeah. smacked him and then I you know, choked him. It's not even choked. He's just, ah! yeah. but it worked good. From that day forward, no one ever went to that corner. They believe yeah. we actually abducted some drug dealers. We didn't even fist fight them. I love <laughs> so it. I love it. It I love shows it. you the psychology was way more important than physicality. Uh, now we solved the problem for the entire community. Now the families go to the laundromat. Families can go to the store without being harassed. Um, they, and, uh, as a result of all of that, the building owners went into the went into the black for the first time. They started making a profit. Uh, yeah. the, the occupancy went from thirty percent to fifty percent to ninety percent to a waiting list. Wow! To get in these buildings, then the people that have the stores, uh, the, there was a Chinese food uh, restaurant there on the corner, um, near the corner. There's a liquor store. All of a sudden, they started blowing up. I mean, they have more customers than ever. So everyone's thriving. Every building owner, every business owner is thriving more than ever before. And all you have to do is keep the people safe. And of course, that means 
you have to have skills yeah. without the tactics, without the skill set, without the knowledge of law, without the knowledge of um, psychology, understanding laws and having the physical skills. You cannot p- be a positive. You're going to do something that's not just terrible for your life, but for the lives of others, even though you have good intent without the training for that, without the knowledge, you destroy yourself. And so, you know, that's, this is what separates our school from any other is that we're showing the tactics we used um, to defend ourselves and others for many, many years. So from there, we ended up in a grocery store where they have a problem with senior citizens being attacked. From there, we got nightclubs. Nightclubs was extraordinary violence. Uh, 20, 30 men attacking per night for periods of time, gangs attacking us um, in different parts of the city. And we always dominated because we trained every day for, for close quarters violence. So that's what you got. That's what you're seeing now is dust is a result of all those years uh, of training, but actually using the training in real life. The feedback from knife disarms, gun disarms, uh, force on force conflicts with gangs that are larger groups than us. So we almost never had a force on force conflict with with anyone that had like five of us there or if there's 10 of us there or 20, 30 of us there. The number of the others that would be attacking us would always be uh, double us or more. So there would be, if there's 20 of us, there's 40, 50 of them, 60 of them, uh, they would be attacking us. And then we would have to dominate. Otherwise we can't eat and we can't come back. Yeah. <laughs> Literally you will be fired. Quick question. Where, how is Detroit right now? And, and, and why I'm asking, there's been so many documentaries and stuff like that coming from across the border. Canada. we see like, like I've seen a documentary where firefighters, there's so many fires happening in buildings. I don't know. This is still ongoing that they would just let the, they don't even, Re- reply to most of the calls anymore because the amount of fires happening and stuff like that. And there's still sections of Detroit that are really, really down and 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 still haven't had that opportunity to uplift economically. Uh no. So those those those, those are part of the um, axioms, you know, like okay. American axioms. They just, you know, we yeah. have a problem with truth in this country. Interesting. Um, yeah, the War of 1812, where the United States tried to annex you know, uh, Canada, a place called Canada. Yeah. Um, yeah, nine out of 10 Americans don't even know what that is. We weren't taught that truth. Yeah. Um, we don't even know that that's what we did. We don't know that we actually, that the United States tried to annex Canada. Yeah. Okay? That's part of our history, right? But it's not part of our history. We don't like the truth. So uh, one of those problems we have in Detroit is the idea that there's dystopia. There's yeah. no dystopia. There's design for dystopia. Interesting. That design is uh, always going to be there. Uh, as long as there is a problem culturally with people that are successful there. So, for example, you said you heard about fires. Yeah. How many marinas, how many marinas did you hear about in Detroit? You don't. You didn't hear about any, right? No. There are five marinas, yeah. um, major marinas, and uh, uh, six, there's six major marinas. One's part of a, a, a country club. Yeah. Uh, a boat club, yacht club, to be specific, Detroit Yacht Club. And uh, with the exception of Detroit Yacht Club, all of the boating uh, communities, all the marinas, which have hundreds of luxury boats, yeah. almost no fishing boats, right? These are luxury boats, yeah. are all owned by African-Americans. And they are third-generation captains. Yeah, These are people with $100,000, a million dollar, $5 million boats. Yeah, How come you don't hear about that? Yeah. All marine, entire marinas filled yeah. with African-Americans with luxury boats in Detroit. Third generation, second generation, some probably are fourth generation boat, boat captains, right? 
from their oh, family, the great grandfather. So a lot of this is a lot of this is media driven. Oh, it's media and business driven. Yeah. So at the end of this, is at the end of this, there is not just media, but there's a business outside of all of it, uh, and it, it all it all stems from um, narratives. So you want to you in our in our society here in the United States, we want to keep narratives. Yeah. And narratives are closely guarded. So, you know, we still celebrate Christopher Columbus coming to the United States, which never came here. Um, Kids still in America, still in the United States. They still, and by the way, you can't be American, even if you're from North America, Central America, or South America, because United States people don't believe anyone's American, but people from the United States. So, (laughs) so, uh, and Christopher Columbus, it never came to the United States, but he's still considered the founder. So we don't like truth here. And so part of that, um, when you look at the media, remember what they're selling is negativity that, cause that sells. Yeah. And these ideas, they also have business relevance. So you can get cheaper property if you think the bad area is bad. I mean, that's, that's the other part of it. Yeah. So the, the reality is for every negative story that you have, there's a hundred positive stories. Yeah. Okay. The problem is you don't get to hear the hundred positives. So yeah. yeah, I learned this the hard way by being here boots in the ground that everything I thought was wrong. Everything I thought from the suburbs, looking at Detroit was completely wrong. I thought these people are so terrible that they are, you know, um, not working with the police. They refuse to do the right thing uh, to to stop the criminality. Uh, In fact, I probably believe the people were criminal oriented. I think I believe that most people um, were leaning towards criminality. I think I believe that. From watching the news, I, you know, I watch the news. Yeah. If you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the news you're getting negative is never from Ann Arbor. I mean, it, why do we even have a police department? Because there's nothing ever happens there, which is not true. Yeah. It's not yeah. true. All right. These are narratives. That's like yeah. thinking that people in Windsor don't have guns. Yeah. And yes, I thought that. So I sent, <laughs> I sent 20 men from the United States uh, to protect an event called Sports Weekend in Windsor. Yeah. Um, sports weekend, they, <laughs> these guys from Canada did not tell me they came to, you know, they came to my place in the yeah. United States asked if we work and, um, I'm sorry, volunteer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're for sure. We didn't get paid. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> to volunteer in Canada, yeah. um, to help with this project. And, um, I sent 20 men of those 20 men, five of them were from the United States. 15 of them were Canadian citizens. Canadian citizens used to come across to Detroit every day. Yeah. By the way, they're on time. Canadians were always on time. And always, they fight. Always, the Canadians always fight just because. Saying sorry? Would they say sorry a lot? They, sorry? Sorry, <laughs> sorry? Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, the Canadians I got were like hardcore, tough, and they would fight when it's time to fight. They, didn't, they weren't talking. A lot of uh, Americans like to talk a lot about fighting. Um, the Canadians like, oh, we're fighting A? Hey. <laughs> it's just great punch, bang, right there. The Canadians, they call themselves the C- the Canadian assault team. That was not how <laughs> call They call themselves on our team. So yeah. I grew from a dog and a rifle uh, to over 100 people a day deploying from my school uh, within a year and a half. So wow. Right. That was very rapid growth. Yeah. And so we will be found in Canada, um, of course, volunteering. Yeah. And um uh, at uh, places that would start opening at 12 midnight and wouldn't close till six yeah. and other places were um, like the sports weekend 
Uh, apparently, Sports Weekend catered to Toronto people. Okay. And all the people I sent were from Windsor. So um, apparently, there's Jamaicans in Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I did not know <laughs> that this Sports Weekend was mainly a place where a lot of Jamaicans came from Toronto down to Windsor for this big event. Interesting. Okay. I also didn't know they had guns. Interesting. <laughs> we found out that they're Jamaicans. They come to Toronto, from Toronto to Windsor and they bring guns. But what, what is the sports weekend? What kind of event is this? It's, they call it the sports weekend. It was like a, like a part, big party for the weekend in Windsor. Oh, it's just a party. Okay. When you said sports weekend, I thought it was like a sporting event or is it was it like right. a. That's what I thought it was. They called it sports <laughs> weekend. And it was, uh, they should have called it Jamaican. Um, or Jamaican Posse Weekend or something. I don't know. But I sent all these non-Jamaican-looking people. Yeah. All right? I had a bunch of Jamaican-looking people. I had a Jamaican. I, in fact, somebody was on my staff at the time that was Jamaican. I just yeah. sent him. Yeah. They were told me it was Jamaicans. So apparently, things went to the left. Uh, we didn't get we didn't get uh, beat down, but uh, the Jamaicans did. Uh, oh, this is, uh, I, I, I don't have proof they were Jamaicans, but I'll say that people that may have been Jamaican uh, then shot into the building uh, that we were in and there were bullet holes in the windows. Oh, so wow. yes, yes. So that just shows you American axioms. The Canadians don't have guns. is not true. No, uh, American Canadians don't have guns. I assure you, I know for a fact. Gun, gun violence has gone up quite a bit here. I mean, yes, you don't, you, guns. you, you, you hear, guns. Yeah, 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 but it, it's, you hear, I mean, you, it's, 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 it's a normal, it's normality now in the morning news, like murders with guns. Like it's, it's, it's a regular thing now. And it's and, and and as a kid growing up, you wouldn't. It's maybe I didn't pay as much attention, but you didn't hear right, that. That's as what much. it really is. You just weren't. You didn't know they weren't yeah. reporting as much. Um, a lot of times you don't want to report it because it, it causes problems to your businesses and, yeah. and property values. You know, uh, so when you think about it, we just didn't know a lot of things. Yeah. And when I, um, I, I so we ended up actually protecting a, a person in Canada against a gang. Um, Again, so we don't know these things because they're not, you know, publicized in the United States. Yeah. But gangs in, in Canada and one of these gangs that rides two wheel vehicles yeah. uh, was um, indicted for murders. Uh, and it was a particular individual and he had caches of weapons around the Windsor area and some other areas. And this particular woman knew where all of them were. And we protected her in uh, in, uh, in Windsor and in other places. She had to travel in Windsor. Uh, sorry, no, we had to go out of Windsor. We had to go up to uh, some. She had to go to a business situation or um, like close to Toronto. Yeah. So yeah, so we had to stay over there. We ended up meeting with RCMP over there, yeah. um, protecting this person and uh, the SWAT team. Windsor SWAT team uh, deployed protecting us with this woman as she went to her home. Because they thought she'd be killed as a witness to this um, cache of weapons and the guy who was uh, killed over 10 people. Wow. So she had to testify. So uh, we yeah. ended up protecting her over in Windsor. And that was like in 98. So I'm going I'm to throw it to another topic here. Dale Brown, what does fatherhood mean to you? Fatherhood to me is um, a great thing. It's amazing. It is um a way for you to, you know, pass on, uh, you know, great things and, and things you've learned. Um, this is great to see kids develop, man, and, and to see yourself in the children too, to see, you know, 
how you were when you were a kid. And it's amazing, man. It's just, it's amazing to see that. I love to see the development, you know, the, yeah. the creativity. My daughter's super, super creative and um, amazing, man. Amazing. Like you see on the videos, she's like seven. So, so you have, you have one daughter or more than one child? I have one daughter and, yeah. and I have a, a stepson and there, uh, my wife is uh, Bosnian yeah. and her son. And he's, he's a great young man as well. He's a really yeah. good kid. Um, really positive. You see him in some of the videos as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, super positive kid, man. Um, I was I was nowhere near a good kid as him at 17. This kid is like super, like super good kid. Um, daughter is super creative. Um, very, very, very cute. Man, she that that. By the way, people watching <laughs> these videos, we're watching my daughter on there. That's not me. I'm not co- coaching her. She she thought the whole thing. Um, <laughs> that was so cute. I was laughing my head off when I was watching that. That's listen. She's her. She's the producer, editor. Um, she is. She designed everything. It's her ideas. Uh, <laughs> and I never told her to get in front of the camera. Like she said, I want to do that. And and she she choreographs her own stuff. Um, at six, she started. Man, she, six years old, she started. She How started old is editing. she? How old is she now? Seven. At six, she started editing. She was correcting during Zoom calls during school. She goes to a, a school here, a private school, and she was correcting the teacher on how to use the computer for the calls. <laughs> <laughs> to use the different symbols, things like that. She's te- six years old. It's amazing. I love uh, it. I love it. It's, isn't it great to see kids being creative, man? Oh, I'm of course, supportive. 100%. 100%. I, my, my family's not supportive of creativity at all. Yeah. Go to college. Go do your work. You know, do some sports or something. And then go to school and then get a job. Go to college, get a job. That's all there was. There's no, there's yeah. no, no creativity. That's something you do it for fun. Yeah. I'm just the opposite. Me and my wife, we are very committed to our kids being very creative, and we we support all their, you know, yeah. creative. They want to be creative and do something. Which would give me a spanking when I was a kid. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, let's do that. That's, I'm the exact way. I've been I've been self employed for 26 years, and I'm I'm always trying to push any type of creativity out of them any type I, I just you put as many options in front of them and see where they where they turn yes. to which is so amazing right isn't that great man oh it's beautiful beautiful I the things that she does for fun uh including jumping over the couch or building a uh, uh, um you know sword fighting in the living room or kicking a ball <laughs> <laughs> we do play ball in the living room we do you know yeah we do sword fight <laughs> those are the memories that you're building with her that they're going to be locked in forever. Right. Which are so, yes. it's so special, so special. So this whole social media, everything you've built and it's been rapid, rapid, rapid growth. No, that, that's recent. Like the last year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been yeah, incredible. It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah, when you I first know. started, where, where was your angle with it? How did, how has it kind of, kind of just morphed into his own, like, that personality is that always you are you like that person all the time like where's the separation there between that oh um i'm just me man i'm not i love it not, i love it i love yeah, it okay. just me. <laughs> so people i think you know, they don't understand that that's part of the problem with these guys who are sports fighters and and um people that are uh martial artists they don't understand yeah. that i'm so you guys signed up for something i get that i signed up too back in the day yeah. but i'm an adult yeah. and and i provide uh something that's needed and that yeah. is um, I create situations where people can live instead of die. Yeah. <laughs> and that for me is, that's just who I am. Yeah. I like to help people. So I'm not, this is not what I do on my part time. I'm not, it's not my business. 
I'm yeah. actually just being me and yeah. people are paying me to be me. I love it. So, I love it. I love so it. The, the, so the disconnect is it, it's that, that people think that I started a business. I just do my thing. And then I found a way for both poor people and rich people to benefit. And I just make the rich people pay me. Yeah. I <laughs> love it. Pay, and I can still provide for the poor on a much larger scale. So it's larger than me. So it's like it. I love a poor it. version of Batman that I created a bat school. <laughs> got these people out rescuing people. I mean, what I really love, man, is that I'm now sharing, you know, for the past 26 years, I got a chance to see not just rescuing people, not just me rescuing people, but watch my team members rescue people. I mean, these, these are things that would have killed people that, yeah. you know, you, you actually stop the violence. So I, we saw, at first I told you that a girl was chased off a bridge, right? Yeah. Okay. So I, I thought the media was lying when they said this girl, this woman was chased off a bridge and the crowd was, was cheering, kill that bitch and kill her and kill her. I was like, oh, the racist media, it's yeah. not true. And what I can tell you now, I can tell you 100%, yes, the crowd will cheer. The beating, torturing, uh, the, killing. The, 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 herd, the, herd, the herd mentality, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree yes, with that. It's psychology. And mm. once again, it's psychology. Once you understand psychology, yeah. you understand how these things are happening. Yeah. So now I can tell you, because we've stopped these, uh, we've gone into the middle of situations and rescued people's daughters. Uh, I, I, the, <laughs> I disarmed a female that was stabbing another female in the face. Um, as she was slashing her face by taking her hands, taking the knife from her hands. Uh, so these are situations we've been in when their people are being attacked. So, and then we had a chance to see the families. You know, one guy that came to work for me said that when he was a little boy, that his uncle, so after he was a Marine and went to Afghanistan, yeah. he came to work for me. He said, when I was a little boy in elementary school, my, my, my uncle came home and said that he was at a nightclub and that uh, he was on his knees in the parking lot and a guy put a gun to his head. He said that Vipers, which is the name of our, our protective service site, Vipers ran at the guy and the guy took off with the gun and saved my life. That's his uncle. And I mean, I, I, um, I remember because I was on an elevated platform. I, I remember that exact situation, but yeah. you, know, you don't think about that. Someone's family. No, right? of course, of course the not. Yeah. Gunman saw my men converging on him and took off running through the crowd. Uh, and so that's what we've done for 26 years is remove these rapes, robberies, murders. Um, I caught a rapist pulling a woman uh, across the ground by right by the Canadian River, by the um, uh, Border Patrol. He was, she, he was pulling her across the ground. When I saw her, uh, she was she got to the fence. Her, her back was bleeding. And as soon as I jumped out of my regular car, I was in like a little, little two-seater car. I thought I was imagining screaming, <laughs> but it was real. I yeah. just checked in the area because I heard some screaming by the river. I just got off duty like three, four, in the, like four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, just leaving a nightclub. And I saw this screaming. As I heard the screaming, went around the corner. This is right next to the river, man, like maybe 50 yards from the from the Detroit River between Windsor yeah. and Detroit. Yeah. And as soon as I got out, the guy started screaming, no, 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 put his hands in the car. Right. No, but you can you can grab this female and pull her, obviously pull her across the ground, her back's all bloody. And and uh, but but when it comes to fighting right now, right? Yeah. You, you you want to give up, put your hands in the car. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's amazing. These, that's such, man, they're cowards. So yeah. when you when you bring them, they can tell you're serious. He can look at my face and say that I was serious. It's like four o'clock in the morning. He can see me running straight at him. Yeah. And he just realized that I'm not a girl. It's not I'm not a woman. He's not gonna be able to manhandle me like that. Yeah. And as a result, he would rather give up. And um, you know, police took him away and 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 uh conversion situation. But I got there about 10 minutes before the police got there. Um 
But the bottom line is, you know, you know, now I can tell you from being in all, all these situations, uh, drive-bys and shootings and stabbing situations, you can be the difference. Every single person can be that person that, that is needed. You don't need a bunch of skills either. Uh, so this concept, you got to go through a million hours of training, that's bullshit. There yeah. are women and children and, and men, uh, police officers and civilians, regular people, senior citizens that are disarming guns, disarming knives right now with no training. Yeah, No training. And unfortunately, there have been police officers disarmed by people with no training, including in the United States. Just in the past two weeks, there have been police officers murdered with their gun by unarmed people. So that's gonna, why we teach police gonna, officers weapon retention. I'm going to I'm going to ask you a few, a few more quick questions. One of them, because you brought that up and because I, I, I have so many close friends that are officers. Where's your mindset? Because we could talk about this all day, I'm sure. But when you talk about police officers, I don't know how it is in the U.S., but I know in Canada, they go through six months of very basic training, very, very basic training. And then they're put into they put on the streets and they're and they're asked to put in situations where they're not able to handle it. Where's your mindset? Like, why why hasn't then hasn't and and they're trying to defund police instead of putting more money for more training, which should be the pure opposite, right? How how, how what's going to change this? Like, what has to happen, or before they turn around and say, okay, you know what? Every every six months you got to go through four weeks of training. Like, there's got to be some type of regulation. What's going to change this? Well, you, you don't have to do much changing um, to make the changes that are necessary. You just but who's, but who's going to do follow it? the structure? And the, the reality is this: <laughs> you, you, what you said was correct. Yeah. You can't, you can't properly be prepared in six months for almost anything. No, oh, six months, okay? six six weeks. They're, they're uh, going through police academy for like six weeks. It's, no, they're no, six, six, well, six months in the United States. I'm sure. It's oh, Canada place. is like they, they're going gotta, through physically. It's not six months. It's like six weeks. Be, no, no, it's, it's, be, it's, it's shorter, be, shorter, no, buddy. Sure. Yeah, I guarantee you that Canada would be. Like most places, six months. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Canadian police are just as professional. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so the, the reality is, uh, the what you said is also true. You need to enhance the funding, not decrease it. Yeah. Uh, but first, you know, just keeping it really simple. The police should be uh, retrained as protectors, not retrained, not retooled as uh, financial um institutions yeah and that's what happened in a lot of places they just they try to figure out how can we use the police to generate more money that's what we want to understand about defunding yeah the police are making more money for their cities than they are receiving yeah yeah okay yeah. it's a money maker that yeah. should never be of course but that's the problem that's the core problem right yeah yeah the core problem is that you created we have created a society a way for a socialist system which is police being paid by tax dollars yeah. to be a generating capitalist uh, program yeah there should be no way that there should be any correlation between police uh actions and profitability because once you start doing that uh profit policing you destroy it because what we're supposed to have at the very least is law enforcement yeah okay so if we really want protection we need to change the entire concept right yeah uh, because law enforcement is based on prosecution so the metrics there's no such thing as positive metrics for law enforcement in any country. I love that. Yeah. There's true. no positive metrics. Yeah. So a lady said to me one day when I was driving by in her neighborhood, her uh, wealthy neighborhood, she said, y'all don't do nothing. I said, ma'am, what do you mean? She goes, you just drive around. I said, ma'am, 
in the past four years, this is about six years ago, I said, man, in the past four years, we've been in your community, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Have you, in the 400 homes in your community, seen or heard of anyone being raped, robbed, or murdered here in the inner city of Detroit near Seven Mile? She said, oh, I never thought of it like that. Oh, no, no, no one's a, no, no, it's not since you guys have been here. That's correct, ma'am, because we stopped the rape, robbery, murder. That's why you don't have it. I said, but remember the other day, the police were outside here on this, on the, right on the street. Yeah. They had all blocked off the other morning, morning, 9 a.m. She yeah. goes, oh, yeah, it's like five cars out here. That's because two blocks from you in this other neighborhood that we don't work in, there was a man coming out of his house at nine o'clock in the morning who was shot 15 times and murdered. I said, did you heard about the judge? This is when this, this federal judge got shot yeah. right across the street from our protected community and right next to another one. We don't yeah. work in that community. A, a federal judge was shot uh, as these three men were trying to home invade him. And the judge resisted, got shot in his leg and kept the three men out of the house. The three men then, three young men, then ran away, jumped in the car and took off. The judge saved, his, saved himself and his family. They could have gone in there and killed his whole family. So yeah. resistance is going to happen. If that judge had been trained by me, that judge would have resisted in such a way that would have decreased the likelihood of him, of him getting shot. And so the police, uh, yes, need actual training. But before we get training, we need PPE. Yeah. Or right after we get you know, academy training, we need PPE. Where is the bulletproof helmet that covers the officer's face? There isn't one. I mean, they make them, but they're not using them. How can you send a firefighter into a fire without a helmet that covers his face? You wouldn't. Yeah. Why would you send a police officer to gunfire without their face being covered? That makes no sense. Why would you send a fire to, a firefighter to go fight fires in a family vehicle? You don't. You send them in a fire vehicle. It's actually yeah. fire retardant. It's actually made for impact. Yeah. It's a fire fighting vehicle, a million dollar vehicle, half million, a million dollar vehicle. Yeah. The uh, police officer gets a family car with a computer. Yeah. Why are you sending a person to to have interaction under uh, conflict conditions. Other human beings, the apex predator on this planet, why would you be sending them to remote places? Most cops work by themselves. 85% yeah. uh, of cops in the United States work outside of cities. 85% of police do not work in a city. They do not have a partner. They have a car, a family car that goes way too fast, but was designed for family conveyance, yeah. not for tactical driving, right? It's not, it was not designed for police tactical driving. And that's what they should have. They should have a police vehicle. And yes, Ford and other companies, GM, have all designed specific vehicles that are specifically for law enforcement protection. Yeah. They're designed for the protection and transport of the, of the prisoners and everything. They're just not using those vehicles. They're using the commercially available vehicle. And there's a business reason behind that, right? Yeah, but yeah. ultimately, if we protect the police, we make them safe. We give them the helmets that cover the face. We give them level uh, level three um, body armor over their entire body. Uh, we train them constantly and consistently. Which is we key. We create conditions where um, there are the inability to involve be involved in inappropriate things. We also, most importantly, need to start their pay at at least a hundred thousand U.S. dollars uh, um, a year. That's a start. That's a base pay. And then bonuses for all the things you want them to do, like not crash cars, yeah. uh, take a drug test, take psych tests, to do all these things. Yeah. Whatever they do, they get a financial bonus for. We're a capitalist society here, and we only we we're very capitalism oriented. Yeah. So you need to say you need to you can't go to people that are raised as capitalists and tell them 
to act socialist. You know, I mean, yeah. we don't we don't do well with that. You're yeah. creating you're creating corruption that has yeah. always been. Here. So yeah. my point yeah. is, I agree with that. I, I thousand percent agree with that. Instead of asking people to reevaluate their affinity for money, yeah. and accolades, and having a better quality of life, yeah. why don't just give them a better quality of life? Give them the metrics. Give them positive metrics. This officer saved this people. He got a bonus for that. This officer stopped this crime. He got a bonus yeah. for that. Yeah. Is that yeah. you know whatever you want, you bonus for that, right? Yeah. Give. I don't care what country you're in, Canada, yeah. Mexico. Yeah. The officers only bonuses for what you want. That's yeah. what the cartel is doing. That's what the mafia does. <laughs> they true. bonus them for what they want. <laughs> All they do is let us do. Here, here's a bonus, officer. Now the officer can have integrity, yeah. or the officer can have a better house for his family. Yeah, yeah. You're I asking the officer to choose between yeah. Yeah. Uh, rules and having a better life for their family. Yeah. My thing is, why yeah. don't we remove that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And let's make it very. That's that's, that's a that's a that's a, I, I a thousand percent agree with you, and that's a topic for even another day. I mean. Like yeah. I, I, I speak to a lot of officers and you hear a lot of stories and, and man, it's the it corruption. Yeah, you shouldn't, yeah. but it, it, it is there because exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's everything you say. Built in. Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. That corruption is there. That's like, um, you know, the, the, the car camera should be inside the car and outside the car. Yeah. Uh, but we also, before you do any of that, you need to train the officers as protectors. And that's my goal. So one of the things we have is a, a police training program yeah. that, links the people and the police together by getting the business community to pay $100 an hour for cops to be trained in our system. $50 goes to the officer and $50 goes to the, to the school. Yeah. So the officer's getting $50 an hour to train in a system. That officer now knows a bunch of techniques that don't injure and kill people while simultaneously making it safer for the officer to, to dominate and control someone against their will, if need be. Yeah. And infused in it is our psychology, which is how you create a non-adversarial interaction for a non-violent outcome. It's literally the method by which you join, mirror, and placate with a human to create a positive interaction for a positive outcome. I love it. I love it. I got, I got so one more. It. I got one more question for you, Dale. Yes. We're we're hitting out an hour and forty minutes. We could be talking here forever. Um, if something were to happen to you today, in a few words, how would you want to be remembered, described by your loved ones? A person that was devoted to the community um, and his family, and. Uh, making sure that people are alive and safe. That's, that's it. That's my whole, you know, everyone else. Um, I think people don't understand that the money is a byproduct, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. I live well. Yes. We have boats. We have all kinds of nice things. We have nothing that was more important than what we do for other people. Yeah. And we volunteer to protect domestic violence victims, stalking victims, uh, crime witnesses. There's no money for that. And you can be killed. The most dangerous things we've ever done is protect Domestic violence victims, stalking victims, and that's for no money. Those people are people that are uh, typically senior citizens or families or uh, women with children that have no protection and they don't have any money anyway. So there's no way to get money from these people, but there is a way to get shot and killed. And that's what happens often with police officers when they go to domestic violence situations. And it's happened to some martial artists who tried to go out and protect, you know, doing a nice thing. There's there's one... um, uh, MMA, I'm sorry, uh, um, a jiu-jitsu instructor who was also a champion fighter. He went to help a, a woman who was being abused and he was trying to help her move out. And the guy came out and killed him. Um, I'm not sure if he killed the girl, but he definitely killed the guy. This uh, the martial arts uh, master. Mm-hmm. And the point is with our training, that didn't have that death did not have to happen. We could have trained him on how our procedures work so he could keep himself safe. That's something we've done for 26 years. Uh, I've been doing it before that even, uh, yeah. but these are people that are at risk, man. And what we need to do is reevaluate um, 
our purpose. The purpose of your training should be to, to help the world be a better place. And that's oh. why I designed the system for it. So that's why I don't call it the Dale Brown system. It's not, it's not how to be me. It's yeah. how the system can adapt to you so you can go out and, and help people and help yourself and create a gr- greater quality of life for you and your family, yeah. your community. Uh, stop, you know, stop doing things that create righteous violence, right? Righteous violence is still not right just because you can legally shoot people or stab them or beat them yeah. up. doesn't mean you have to. Yeah, and of course. our training, we teach you how to create peace peacefully. And that only way you can have that confidence, though, is if you have competence. You yeah. must know how to disarm guns and knives in order to lose your fear. If you have fear, if you, don't, if you can't lose your fear, if you're not able to manage your fear, you cannot protect yourself or others properly. Yeah. So, and also remember this, man, love is the key, love. So if you're going to protect anything, if you're going to protect anyone, you have to love the thing you're going to protect. And anything that we love as human beings, that is what we will naturally protect. That's yeah, just course. natural. You don't have to be taught that. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. what you need in, in police or civilian protection is people that actually care. So the best cops in Canada, Mexico, Detroit, United States, the best police officers are those officers that really care about people. And yeah. we need to be protecting those officers. We need to be um, promoting those officers. Yeah. And we need to give extra bonus pay to those officers that are committed to public safety done safely. Uh-huh. And that's what my program is for. Uh, the schools are going to be a, a hub for police and civilians to train in Canada, in yeah. you know Mexico, in uh, Uruguay, everywhere in the world. We're going to have these schools. And the point of the school is to unify people and the police both together, training in the same location, training in how not to injure and kill, right? Yeah. So teach people the law so they know how to comply with police. Right now, in the United States, it's a, a fad to not comply, yeah. right? I mean, is, you know, so no, it's true. So yeah. to yeah. a negative, which is to to create conditions for prosecutorial conduct, no matter what, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the the opposite is, well, then the people will begin to hate those people, and that's what's been happening for some years in this country. It's not new. It's, it's been a it's been a thing. Yeah. My point is this: there's no there's nothing good without the enforcement of laws. Nothing. There's nothing good. You of must course. have law enforcement. It yeah. must be done by the state. It cannot be done by a private sector. So yeah. libertarians, I don't know if you saw any of my, if you Googled me, yeah. but libertarians, um, which I like libertarians, I like their concepts, the construct yeah. is nice, but you have to understand that that doesn't match human behavior. Yeah, Human behavior is what I understand intimately because I'm accountable for it, both within my staff and in the, in the communities we protect, right? Yeah, We protect wealthy people and poor people. But if you don't understand human behavior, and you still have ideas, well, I have ideas, but if you don't study it, if you're not responsible, you didn't, if you have experience, you're about to make a decision or an idea that is deleterious to your actual outcome. You're going to make it worse. I call it yeah. deleterious panacea. Like yeah, um, yeah. you're going to hire um, private sector police, right? Yeah. To hire these private cops. Okay, why would private cops be better than governmental cops? It literally makes no sense. It yeah. literally can't work because the point of policing or law enforcement the point of law, let's be clear about the difference in terms. Protection prevents things from happening that are bad. Yeah. Policing is a, an industry. It's a way of doing things, right? Yeah. Uh, you, use, you use prosecution, right? Uh, it's use law enforcement for the purpose of prosecution. Yeah. Law enforcement in and of itself is just simply enforcing laws that have been broken. Yeah. The distinctions are very important for those things because you don't understand why Secret Service isn't having the problems that other people are having and they're protecting people around the world. How come the secret service hasn't shot anyone? 
The Secret Service has not shot any person, but they have protected the president of the United States successfully almost every time for many years now. Yeah. There's been very low exceptions, right? They're, they're, their rate of success is 99.99%, okay? Yeah. So my point is, why are they not accidentally shooting people? Why are they not having the violence? And that's because the Secret Service is tasked with protection. Yeah. I love that. I love they that. And a lot of and a lot of people don't ever have that mindset when you're listening to it. I mean, you're 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 pretty much explaining it to a, such a detail, right? Because you hear when you look at a, an officer, I mean, everything you're saying is is so true. They're there to stop it, stop it from originally happening, instead of just there having that mindset of where we were there to prosecute it, right? Right. So and then the police, if you tell you can't tell the police, listen, we we think you're a good cop. If you got a lot of prosecutions, yeah, but then expect that cop not to go out and create prosecutions, yeah, because there's a mandate. Uh, there's 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 a pressure on there's a pressure on them to get a certain amount of tickets to so get a certain amount of yeah, I agree or, or accolades. It doesn't have to be that. Yeah, yeah. Be in a yeah. system. It could be yeah. you are a great officer if you do X Y Z. Yeah. So example yeah. is Detroit. The uh, officer that had the most kills um, was an uh, officer named um, uh, Henderson. Officer Henderson in 1925. Is when he was hired, he was the first African American police officer allowed to carry a gun. There were other African American cops before that, but they couldn't carry guns. Yeah, and this African American cop killed thirty African Americans, and he was considered to be the best cop in Detroit until 2019, when uh, the people um, demanded he be taken out of the um, uh, police. Uh, there's a, a, a police it's award, a like a like Hall a, of Fame kind of thing. Yeah, Hall of Fame, correct. He yeah, was taken out of the Hall of Fame in 2019 okay but this african-american police officer from i think he's from mobile alabama yeah uh somewhere uh no he's from mississippi that's right and he's african-american dark-skinned guy big guy violent guy um was uh you know killed 30 african-americans and killed one um italian gangster which is also very unusual because yeah. at that time the african-american cops were not allowed to stop anyone or talk to anyone as a police officer that was not african-american uh, and he did. He actually killed an Italian gangster um, at the time, which is, you know, that was also revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, he was definitely, obviously, a bad guy. Yeah. So uh, the reality is, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, now we don't have those kind of people, right? Yeah. That, that's not that's not a thing anymore. And so we have to create a culture uh, for law enforcement that says, listen, we're going to reward you for all these great things you do, right? Yeah. And those great things are all the things you want your law enforcement community to focus on. And you bonus them, and now they're wealthier, happier people. And when people are wealthier and happier, they tend to do things um, like make other people happy. Yeah. So we teach civilians how to get along with police officers, uh, not just the law, right? Well, I don't teach, I, yeah, yeah. I teach I call it tactical law, but I don't teach the law you see in the book. I teach law based on human behavior. So once you understand human um, compulsive behavior and psychology, you can make better decisions. When I teach police officers, uh, I start teaching cops back in the uh, for the day one. So I started teaching in 1995. Yeah. And so I had a chance to see, uh, and I've employed over a hundred police officers and I have police officers that work for me right now. Yeah. And I have a, my law enforcement program is actually being run by a police officer that is a federal police officer. Currently he was a Detroit cop and he was in the police academy for almost 10 years. And that's where we met Detroit police Academy. And he was, uh, the only police officer, uh, that is a pro was a pro fighter. And he also won King of the Cage in California uh, before he, while he was a police officer. Awesome. So 
Yeah, yeah. Great guy, family guy, uh, great community guy, great police officer. And he's our lead instructor for police. And so okay. we had a great jujitsu uh, purple belt uh, and just a serious jujitsu guy. He goes to jujitsu yeah. training right now. He still yeah. loves training jujitsu as he's an instructor at our school. Always our improving. Training, yes. And, and always enjoying it. Like enjoy yeah. it. What we do in Detroit Urban Survival Training is not sport. You're not going to switch off from BJJ or MMA and come do this. Yeah, yeah. This is survival. So it's gun disarms, knife disarms. Then you don't even move around a lot. You're yeah. not going to get any. You're not going to get any athletic um, feelings from, from our training. You're, you're, everything's yeah. done in three seconds, three yeah. movements or less, yeah. right? Uh, and the um, people that are doing sports, and then we got guys that are sports fighters. Yeah. That's, this is not for that. This is to yeah, make sure. Yeah, yeah. When you're out there, you understand the laws so you don't yeah. get yourself in trouble. Yeah. More importantly, it shows you how to use psychology so you can de-escalate someone. Yeah. You know, create a condition where you don't have to fight in the first place. Yeah. And then so if you had to fight, how do you read the body language? We call it read, recognize evasive, aggressive, deceptive behavior. So yeah. you can make the best decision to create the most nonviolent outcome. So if you think about what, what, what dust is Detroit Urban Survival Training, it's how to not fight. It's how to not kill people. It's an anti-fight and anti-kill system. Uh, it's the first school of its kind that teaches people um, anti-fighting and anti-killing. And it. so that's good for every community. I love it. I love it. We're going to end it off right there. This has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate your time. I'm sure I'm going to have you back on. I'm sure. Thank you. I, I was listening to Snoop, so I'm sure you're going to be on TV a lot sooner than later. <laughs> so was a lot crazy? of fun. <laughs> Snoop, Snoop was amazing, man. Yeah, he didn't believe. He, he did not believe it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mind. I, I like it people don't believe. Yeah, yeah um, I love it. I love it. The look on their face is like, yeah. it's like uh, I feel like I'm the David Copperfield <laughs> or David Blaine uh, of um. Uh, so, tactics, man. I love it. I love it. I love you it. Stuff in the street that we do with the basketball players. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. That's like I'm David Blaine out here. <laughs> I'm doing magic tricks on people. They really, I swear to you, they don't believe the tactics work. And I until you it. do it, man. But the look on their face, like I thought it was fake. Ow, yeah, ow. I love it. Crazy. I love it. People are people are stopping me everywhere, man. I know. I mean, I can't. I, I love stopping it. Gas stations in Florida, random yeah. place in California, beyond the desert. They're stopping me. <laughs> Take selfies. Show me some tactics. I I've never it. seen like pain so much in my life. I love it's it, buddy. With Detroit Pistons tonight. Detroit Pistons uh, keep bringing me out to their games. I and love it. The kids, the fans, man. I mean, every demographic, old people, young people, from every culture, every every ethnic group are coming up. They're so happy. They want to take but pictures. You put, you put, you put, you've put in the work. You've put in the time. Yeah. You've yeah, put in the yeah. time. It's you, a, you know, know what? You always hear you always hear that overnight success. There's no such thing as an overnight success. Right, you know, I'm tired. So I'm older. I'm 52. I'm like, oh, we're doing it so long. All of a sudden, you get. It was, you know, what's funny. I've been doing this for so long. It's like, really? Are you but now, sure? but now you're rejuvenated, huh? It's awesome. I'm trying. I'm trying. It's awesome. You're doing amazing, brother. You're doing amazing. Thank you, man. You're thank the best. You for having me. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank our guest, Dale Brown, for taking time as busy scheduled to be a guest on the Jeff Nozine podcast. What a great conversation! If you guys enjoyed it as much as I have. Like all weeks, tell your friends, tell your family, help spread the word. We're trying to build something special here. Leave a review. Five stars would be absolutely amazing. Myself, my team would love spending time reading the reviews. Until next week, guys, keep moving forward.